Let's pray together. Father, we come in the name of Jesus. We don't come under the name of Emmaus. We don't come under the name of any individual here. Father, we come to you only through the name of Jesus Christ. And Father, we pray that everything that we do individually, everything that we do as a church would be in the name of Jesus, that we would be a Jesus-infused, spirit-empowered people of God. And Father, we pray that as we come to a time of studying your word, Father, that you would speak to our hearts and to our minds. God, that we would desire to hear from you, not the opinion of any person, but we desire to hear from you so that our lives, our attitudes, our words, everything about us, Father, would be shaped by who Jesus is and what he's done for us. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. All right, Emmaus, great to see you again this morning. Take your Bible and turn to Revelation chapter three. We have this week and one more working through the seven churches of Revelation chapters two and three. And then when we get into August, we're going to enter a a new series of sermons at that point and we'll move into that one thing that starts in the middle of August, but we won't mention the name of which starts in the middle of August. So whatever happens in the middle of August, Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, don't worry about tomorrow. Every day has enough trouble of itself, of, of its own, so we won't worry about tomorrow. But we do have two more weeks left looking at these churches of Revelation chapters two, two and three. One of the things, uh, this morning we're gonna be in Revelation chapter three, verse seven, if I didn't say that, didn't say that earlier, but one of the things I've noticed reading through Revelation two and three is even though each of these churches, there's so much local material, so much specific material just for the individual church, I'm struck by how integrated these letters are. In other words, we don't just read them as seven individual separate letters, but the more I look at them, the more we have to see the way that they fit together. And so as you go back in your personal Bible study reading time, having the background of what we studied the last few weeks, read these letters all in one setting and see the way that they fit together and how there are different themes and different concepts that tie them, tie them together. That's something that's really, really stood out to me. I want us to begin by reading verses seven to 13 this morning. If you have a bulletin uh, that you got as you came in, if you turn it over to the back, there's gonna be some notes uh, that will guide us through our time this morning, but we're gonna read, starting out here, the message to Philadelphia. Verse seven, and to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, he who is holy, who is true, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, and who shuts and no one opens, says this, I know your deeds. Behold, I have put before you an open door, which no one can shut, because you have a little power, and have kept my word, and have not denied my name. Behold, I will cause those of the synagogue of Satan, who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie. I will make them come and bow down at your feet, and make them know that I have loved you. Because you have kept the word of my perseverance, I also will keep you from the hour of testing, that hour which is about to come upon the whole world, to test those who dwell on the earth. I'm coming quickly. Hold fast what you have so that no one will take your crown. 
Verse 12, he who overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God, and he will not go out from it anymore. And I will write on him the name of my God, and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven from, God, from my God, and my new name. And then verse 13, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. May God bless the reading of his word. As we study God's word together at Emmaus, one of the things we value, one of the things we want to make part of our lives are those good, rich theological books that help us to understand scripture and to be able to come together around the truths of God's word. Books like We're Going on a Bear Hunt. Anybody familiar with this? We're Going on a Bear Hunt. So this family sets out on a bear hunt in this book, and they run into all of these different, different struggles. So like one example, we're going on a bear hunt, we're going to catch a big one, what a beautiful day, we're not scared, oh, oh, a river, a deep, cold river, and then this is the key, we can't go over it, if you guys know it, you can just read along with me, we can't go under it, oh no, we've got to go through it oh yes we have fans and then splash 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 you guys know that part all right then next well they go to a couple of other places then we're going on a bear hunt we're going to catch a big one what a beautiful day we're not scared uh oh a forest a big dark forest we can't go over it we can't go under it oh no We've got to go through it. And then you'll have to get the book to find out what happens to this family on the bear hunt. What does it mean? We can't go over it. We can't go under it. Can't go around it. We've got to go through it. So the book of Revelation, the reason we say it's not Revelations plural, it's Revelation singular, is because the book of Revelation is the revelation of the victory of Jesus Christ. It's the revelation of the victory of Jesus Christ that's laid out in chapter one, that's seen in and through the churches of chapters two and three, and then that's played out throughout the course of history as we see God's victory through Jesus over sin, over evil, over death. Those churches, those people who are called by the name of Jesus to follow after him, what we find from the book of Revelation is following after Jesus means following the way of the cross. And the way of the cross is a way that goes through suffering, through death, through pain, so that through that we find victory. People say, why Christianity? You know, all these religions out there, all these ideas out there, what's, what's so appealing about Christianity, which is a very valid question, and one that we probably should think about a lot. But the thing that always stands out to me, one of the things that has been one of those confirming factors in my heart of why follow the path of Jesus is because it's a path that goes through the cross, not around it. That you see God taking on flesh, taking on sin, taking on suffering, not trying to skirt it, not trying to go around it, not trying to avoid it, not trying to say, get into a certain state of mind where you don't experience any pain or trouble or suffering. No, it goes straight through it. Christianity takes on the heart of darkness at the cross and through Jesus Christ and the power of the resurrection that sin and darkness and death has been completely defeated. 
It goes through it, not around it. What I want us to think about this morning from this passage in Revelation is what does it mean in life to go through something, not over it, under it, around it? And in these verses, we go through three things. So on your, on your verse, uh, on the back of your bulletin, the three main points are going through three different things. These verses start out first talking about going through the door of salvation. So starting in verse seven, going back to Revelation three, we're talking about going through the door of salvation, starting out. It says in verse seven, to the angel of the church in Philadelphia, right? Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love, was actually named by a king of this time who really loved his brother a lot, and so he established the city and he named it Philadelphia because he was naming it in honor of his brother, who he really loved. A few years later, it was destroyed by one of the worst earthquakes that this part of the world ever experienced in history, this incredible cataclysmic earthquake. That's what happens when you try to do something nice for your brother. You try to name a city for him, and the next thing you know, an earthquake destroys it. So uh, this is the trouble of having brothers. You try to do something nice, and it falls apart on you. Uh, But this city of Philadelphia in the year 19 AD was completely destroyed by an earthquake. It was a city like most of these uh, places. I think we have our map back up here. If, If you have trouble seeing these maps that show the churches of Revelation, you can search online, and there are a lot of different options that give you ways to look at this, but we've made our way around, starting on the left with Ephesus, and we've gone in a clockwise circle, and now we're at Philadelphia. Philadelphia is like many of these other places. It's located in an area where there was a Jewish population, but it seems like this Jewish population had really found a way to fit in with society uh, to the point that they're even referred to as a synagogue of Satan in this place, not disparaging in any way Jews in general, but just talking about how these Jews who purported to follow the, the one true God have just completely fit in with their culture and with their society. It was an area where they would have been surrounded by pagan idolatry. It was an area where the Christians would have known opposition for their faith. And what we find is what Jesus says to them next in verse seven. We get the description. Every one of these letters starts out with a description of Jesus. And this one says, he who is holy, holy, the one who is pure, the one who is not contaminated by the evil that's so rampant in this area, the idolatry. He who is holy, who is true. The word true in verse seven is meant to be the contrast to verse nine where it references the synagogue of Satan, those who say that they're Jews, but it's actually a lie. They're, they're, they're living a fake. They're following a false God, essentially. Jesus is the true Messiah. In a world full of lies, in a world that's full of all of uncertainty, Jesus is true. This is what the description is. He who is holy, he who is true, and then he who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, and who shuts and no one opens. Now this is an interesting phrase, and it kind of helps to make sense of what's going on in in this description. If you have uh, kids and you pull up to the house and you don't go through the garage, but you give one of them the key to go and open the door, they have the power with that key to keep their siblings from getting in the house. They can stand there and fiddle with the door because they want to make it really hard on their siblings. If, 
you grew up in a situation where maybe you were a latchkey kid and you would come home and you were the one in charge of the key, that's incredible power. That's incredible power that you hold over your friends, you hold over your siblings. The one who has the key has the authority, has the power to give access to something. Isaiah chapter 22, verse 22 is up on the screen. It's gonna be the background for understanding this verse. Isaiah 22, I will place on his shoulder the key of the house of David. Talking about Eliakim, one of the uh, royal officials, he'll have the key of the house of David. He shall open and no, none shall shut. He shall shut and none shall open. So the people would have known this reference, he's picking up on this reference from the book of Isaiah of how there would be an official who would be able to have authority to give access to the place of God, to this area and only a few people would be able to get in there and only if this person allowed them in. Go to verse eight in Revelation three. So what it says in verse eight, I know your deeds, Jesus speaking to this church. Behold, I have put before you an open door which no one can shut because you have a little power and have kept my word and have not denied my name. What does it mean that I've put before you an open door? Open door here, there's a little bit of debate and, and research on this passage, but almost certainly open door here is access to the people in the place of God. Open door is how you get to God. We would say it's referencing salvation, but not salvation just in a one-time sort of thing, but salvation and coming into all the fullness of what it means to know God and experience his life at work in your life. So it's open door, access to fellowship with God, access to the people in the place of God. It's access to salvation. And Jesus says, I've set before you this open door. In the Old Testament, in the book of Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 26, verse two, there's this reference. It says, open the gates that the righteous nation may enter, the one that remains faithful. God had always promised his people that they would be able to enter into his place. They would be able to enter into his people. When you fast forward to the New Testament, what you find in the book of Acts chapter 14 is that God opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. This is all the promises of God coming true in the New Testament, but now this access is available to everybody. It's not just given to the Jewish nation, it's not just given to the people of Israel, it's given to all people, Acts 14 is showing us. The question is though, how do you get through that door? And even before how do you get through that door, what is that door, what's being referenced? John chapter 10 is our answer to that question. John chapter 10, starting in verse seven. Jesus said again to them, truly I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. So there's our answer given to us right off the bat. I am the door. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy, I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. So in Revelation chapter three, I've set before you a door that's open and no one can shut. That door is Jesus himself. He says, I am your access to the people of God. John fourteen six is a verse that many of you have memorized over the years that 
No one can come to the Father except through Jesus. He's the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus is the door. He is the way to the Father. How will they go through that door? Back in verse 8, it gives you a clue there. Back in verse 8, it says, I have put before you an open door which no one can shut because you have a little power. The church of Philadelphia, remember, was not a powerful political force. This would have been a very weak church. It would have been a very poor church. It would have been a church that had no social clout. They were not going to be able to open any doors on their own. That's a phrase we still use in culture, that you're able to go and open a door for yourself. You're able to make something happen. The church at Philadelphia couldn't do that. They did not have the strength or the resources to open the door, but Jesus had opened the door. He was their access to God, however weak they might have been. Which means we have to be so careful with some of those phrases we throw out there sometimes. A popular American phrase is God helps those who help themselves. Revelation three is God helps those who can't help themselves. Be very careful with the phrase, God helps those who help themselves. You're gonna search endlessly without any fruit in the Bible to find that phrase. What you do find here is God helps those who cannot help themselves get out of the situation, that he is the one who is rescued and saved. And there might be a part of you that says, Owen, deep down, that's kind of why I really don't like Christianity very much, because it's just a crutch. Well, it's a crutch because we need a crutch. It's source of salvation because we need salvation. If we could do this on our own, we wouldn't need Jesus to be the door for us. But because we have only a little power like the Church of Philadelphia, we are rescued out of that because of the grace of God. But it's not a weak system, okay? Let's make sure we're we're clear on that. When I say that God helps those who can't help themselves, it's not that you're entering into this weak system where you're just given a passive entrance, do whatever you want, live however you want. It's God rescues us in order to shape us into his image so that we will work out our salvation with fear and trembling. It says in Ephesians 2 verse 10 that we are made into his workmanship, that God created us to be his workmanship in order to do good works. So when you hear this phrase that God helps those who can't help themselves, it doesn't lead into this weak, boring, passive lifestyle. It leads into the essence of everything life was meant to be from the beginning that God makes a way for us to come. It says here, and then this is the way that we know that that's the case, if you go back to verse eight, it says, because you have a little power, that seems very weak, but look at the next phrase, and have kept my word. That's a very strong phrase. If you're a Bible underliner or highlighter, in verse eight, you need to underline or highlight the word kept, it may not necessarily say kept in your, uh, in your translation, but after I have a little power and have kept my word. Because what that is, that's picking up on Revelation chapter 1 verse 3. So if you scroll up in your phone or you turn back in your Bible, Revelation chapter 1 verse 3, establishing what this book is going to be about. Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of the prophecy And some translations will say, heed the things which are written in it. That word there, though, is the word keep, kept. It's the same word that comes from Revelation Revelation chapter 3, verse 8. And even better than that, it's the same word that comes from Matthew 
chapter 28, verse 20, when we have the Great Commission where Jesus says to go into all the world and make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And then the next phrase, teaching them to obey. The word obey there, teaching them to obey, is the word keep. It's the same word that comes from Revelation 1-3, the same word that comes from Revelation chapter 3, verse 8. Salvation, as we see God rescuing us and leading us through the story, he says it's for those who have little power, and it's those for who have kept my word, who have held on to the things of the Lord. And then it's described even further at the end of verse 8, who have kept my word and have not denied my name. We've talked before that the whole book of Revelation has this banner over it that says Jesus is Lord. Romans chapter 10, verse nine, that if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Confessing Jesus as Lord means that we have not denied his name. And Jesus says that is the door that will lead to salvation. That is the door that is open. It's for those who realize they don't have power on their own, for those who have kept my word and those who have not denied me, who have confessed me as Lord, they will go through this door of salvation. But there's another point here that we trip over. And the point we trip over is scripture is very clear that Jesus is the door to salvation not one door. And we struggle so badly because we want to make our own door. If you've ever been a part of a construction project or you've ever survived the experience of redoing a house, maybe with a spouse or a family, or you've gone through something like that and you have a debate over does the door go here or does the door go there? There's no debate in Christianity. Jesus has established the door. He is the door. He is the one that we go through to find salvation. If you struggle with that and you say, man, preacher, that is so narrow-minded of you. In a sense, yes, that it is narrow-minded because Jesus said it was narrow. Matthew chapter seven, verses 13 to 14, Jesus explicitly said, enter by the narrow gate. For the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction and those who enter by it are many. But the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life and those who find it are few. So if someone ever says or you're thinking to yourself this morning, how narrow-minded of you to say that Jesus is the only way to life with God, realize that in very much in itself is a reflection of what Jesus taught about himself. But it's not narrow-minded in the bigoted sense because it is narrow, but it's a way that's open to everyone. Because Jesus also makes clear in scripture that whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. It's a narrow path, but it's open to everyone. It doesn't matter how talented you are, it doesn't matter your social standing, it doesn't matter your economic standing, anyone is able to go through that gate of salvation, that gate that leads to salvation that is Jesus Christ. Here's the reason, people ask me all the time, why, are there not more than one, why is there not more than one way to get to God? Why is Jesus the only way? Why not two doors that lead to salvation? Because if there were two doors, we would want three. And if there were 99 doors, we would want 100. And if there were 999 doors, we would want 1,000. The issue in our heart, if we trip over the fact that Jesus is the only way to salvation, the issue usually is not Jesus. The issue is the fact that we didn't get to pick the door. We didn't get to build the door. 
And I say that looking at my own heart, realizing what resides there. We have to be so careful to say, I would really like Christianity better if there were two doors. No, we wouldn't. We would just want three doors. We would always want something more. Jesus is the door that leads to salvation. And that door, according to Revelation chapter three, verse eight, is wide open. And so if you're here this morning and you have not walked through the door of salvation, do not wait another day. Today is the day of salvation. You may be here interested in Jesus but never confessed him as Lord. You may be here out of respect for family members or friends, but the door is open that leads to salvation. And it's not a hoop that you jump through, it's a door that leads to life. And that life is found through Christ. When we realize I can't do it on my own, he has salvation, I will confess him. Point number two, what happens when you go through the door of salvation? Verse nine, actually verse 10, let's skip ahead to verse 10 to to keep rolling here. Verse 10, because you have kept the word of my perseverance, I also will keep you from the hour of testing, that hour which is about to come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. All right, so when you walk through, not over or under or around, when you walk through the door of salvation in Jesus, it leads to walking through the valley of suffering. And you say, oh, thanks, that's why I really want to follow Jesus, because what I get is I get to walk through the valley of suffering. But not in a defeated, dark sense, but just in the reality that when we follow after Jesus, remember we're following the way of the cross, and the way of the cross went through suffering, went through difficulty, went through the pain of the world, so that victory would be found on the other side. And those who follow after Jesus will follow the same path. We will follow this path. You may be here this morning, you're asking, why am I going through this? And this is a thousand different things. Or you may be asking, why am I going through this again? We just went through this in our family in the past. We, we just went through this, why am I going through this again? Or you look at something coming up ahead of you in your life and you say, I don't want to go through that. We use this language. We use this language of what does it look like to go through something and not around it or over it or under it. And you say, what does that have to do with verse 10? Well, verse 10 is a very controversial verse. I'll just let you, let you in on that. We don't, we're not going to explore every corner of the verse, but there's a key phrase in here I want you to look at. So verse 10, going back, thinking, what does it mean to go through something and not around it? Verse 10, because you have kept the word of my perseverance, there's the word kept again, same word that we saw in verse eight, same word that we saw in Revelation chapter one, that's a key word here. You kept the word, I also will keep there's something going on here with this word. You can see it's, it's key to making sense of this. I also will keep you from the hour of testing. There are two main interpretations of this verse right here. One is that this verse is often used as a reference point for the rapture, that the church is coming up to a time of 
the tribulation, or some people will call it the great tribulation, and there's gonna be a rapture where I will keep you from the hour of testing means that you will be taken away from the pain that is inflicted here on the world, and you're not gonna have to go through suffering. You're not gonna have to go through this difficulty. That's one interpretation. I wanna give you another way to think about this verse that I think matches better with what's going on in this entire, entire chapter, in this entire situation. That phrase there in the middle of verse 10, I will keep you from the hour of testing. The other place in the New Testament that you find that construction, that idea, is in John chapter 17. So if you want to turn over to John 17 in your Bible or your phone, feel free to do that. The words will be up here on on the screen. But in John 17, Jesus is praying, knowing that the cross is right in front of him and knowing what his disciples are going to face in their lives. Jesus knows that he's about to go through something, and his disciples are about to go through something that's gonna be very difficult. And so he prays for them in John chapter 17. John chapter 17, starting in verse 12, here's what it says. He's praying, this is Jesus praying to the Father. While I was with them, I was keeping them in your name, which you have given me. And I guarded them, and not one of them perished but the son of perdition, so that the scripture would be fulfilled. And then in verse 13, But now I come to you, and these things I speak in the world, so that they may have my joy made full in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. Then look at this next phrase. This is, this is the key to making sense of Revelation chapter 3. I do not ask you to take them out of the world, but to keep them from the evil one. So Jesus is praying here, not that his disciples would be removed from all suffering and all pain and all difficulty of testifying to Christ in the midst of a broken, sinful, hurting world, but he does pray specifically that they would be kept, that they would not be overtaken by the evil one. It's the exact same phrase, and I would argue it's the exact same concept that's going on in Revelation chapter three, verse 10. That Jesus is saying in Revelation three, verse 10 to the church at Philadelphia, you will face suffering. In this world, you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. I'm not praying that you would be taken out of the situation, but that you would be kept, that you would not be overtaken by the hour of testing when it comes, that you would not be overtaken by the evil one. Jesus is telling them, you will go through this and you will be able to overcome because I will be with you going through this. We have to go through situations, not over, under, or around. The question is, how do you do that? When something is in front of you and you realize I have to go through this, how do you do it? On your notes, I put a couple of options there. At least I meant to. If I, if I didn't, I'll read them off to you. But uh, how do we go through situations as opposed to going around them? The first is we remember the presence of the Holy Spirit. We remember the presence of God with us. Psalm chapter 23 actually uses the same language about going through something. Psalm 23 is the famous, the Lord is my shepherd psalm. Psalm chapter 23, verse four, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, not around it, over it, under it, I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, what's the result? I will fear no evil. Why? For you are with me. 
In your life, you are going to walk through situations. And you're gonna go through that situation and you're gonna be sad, you're gonna be hurt, you're gonna be broken, but you're not going to be afraid. And people are gonna ask you, why are you not afraid going through this? And you're gonna say, for he is with me. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. God is with us, we do not go through this alone. Why do we know we don't go through it alone? Because we have the example of Christ. Think about Christ. If you're not familiar with the New Testament, there's a scene at which Jesus is getting very close to his death on the cross. He's in a garden called Gethsemane. And he prays to the Father that he'll be able to go over, under, or around what's in front of him. He says, if there's any way, let this cup pass from me. I don't want to go through what's right in front of me, but not my will, but yours be done. In other words, if we can avoid this situation, Lord knows I would want to avoid it, but we may have to go through it, and if we do have to go through it, I know that you're gonna be with me, and so I'll go through it. When we go through a situation we don't wanna go through, we're following the example of Christ. And what we have beyond that is we have all of these stories, the encouragement and hope of God's word. The Bible is full of situations where people had to go through situations they didn't want to go through, but we read their stories and we're encouraged by their faith and we're encouraged by God's faithfulness to them. And then lastly, we have the support of the body of Christ, that we don't go through these situations alone. Why does it matter that you go through something and not around it. Why does it matter that God takes us through the valley of the shadow of death and not around it? On your notes, I've given four ideas about why it matters that we go this way. The first is because it displays a clear and accurate picture of Jesus for others. If Christians never went through situations that were hard, if we never had to go through the valley of the shadow of death, it would give off a false impression of who Jesus is. Jesus' victory and salvation in our life came because he went through the cross, not around it. And as Christians, when we go through those times of suffering, when we go through those situations, we are displaying for the world what it means to experience the victory of Christ. This is why, and I'm not gonna harp on it because I don't want it to become something we're just beating all the time, but this is why the prosperity, health and wealth gospel is such a sham, because it gives the world a false picture of the victory of Christ. We miss the fact that the hope of Christ comes because he went through the cross, not around it, and it's our job as the church to testify to what it means to follow Christ. Second thing on your notes is going through the valley, not around it, builds courage and faith, which I hate to even say as the preacher because it sounds like your parents telling you this is going to build character. Just go through this and it's going to build. Most of us would think, man, I would like to build a little less character. Like, I don't know how much character I've built in life, but I would like to build a little bit less. When we go through those situations, though, it builds courage and faith. I know many of you have a few more years of experience than my wife and I do, but one of the things that we have found in life is we will come up to a situation in life and we'll think, I really don't know how we're gonna get through this. But every time that happens, we're able to look in the past and say, yeah, yeah, but, but God was faithful back there. Remember how he carried us through that last situation. And remember how he gave us courage and faith to go through that situation. And the same God who carried us through that situation is the same God who will carry us through this situation. 
And every time we go through a situation not around it, we build courage and faith so that we know that when that next thing comes, we will continue to walk with the Lord. We will continue to trust in him. And then number three, when we go through these valleys, when we go through these times of suffering, we walk with others through that process. There's a, there's a really dangerous, toxic, religious idea out there about pastoral privilege. And let me just say that Emmaus is extremely good to, to me and my family, and I, I'm thankful for that. But there's this idea of pastoral privilege that, you know, maybe as a pastor, I can avoid some of those hardships. I'm just gonna kinda keep myself separated from what's happening with the people, and if I can keep myself separated from that, you know, whatever they go through is kind of their business, but as long as I'm taking care of it, I'm okay. I, I could fail at any moment on that, but let me just tell you my heart is that I would not lead in that way, that we would go through these things together. God has called us to walk through these times together, not alone. We walk with one another. That's the reason it matters that you're part of a church. People say, why does it matter if I'm part of a church? Because when you come up to a situation and you have to decide, do I go through this or around it? The only way you're probably going through it is if you have people walking with you through it. And the people who are gonna walk with you through that situation are going to be your church family. They're gonna be the brothers and sisters in Christ that the Lord has put around you. And then lastly, on this situation, when we go through situations, we're forced to deal with what really matters in life. When you find yourself not wanting to go through something, but wanting to go over, under, around, it probably reveals something in your heart. And let me, I'll rephrase that. It probably reveals something in my heart when that happens to me. Because what it means is, I just want to live on the fringes of life. I don't want to deal with the things that really matter. Introverts uh, unite here for a moment. Introverts, my gift to you this morning is you notice we didn't do the greeting time this morning. You're welcome. <laughs> that was for all of us. Um, we, we, we just kind of skipped the greeting time from time to time to protect our hearts who don't do well during that time. But if you're an introvert like me, you've had the experience where you've needed to get from point A to point B, and there was a group of people between you and the point you needed to get to, and your heart starts to kind of like flutter, and you start to get, you know, like clammy hands, and you think, how am I going to get to that situation over there without having to go through those people right in front of me? So you're looking for passageways, hallways to get around. There's a funny side to that, but there's also a serious side to that. Watch your heart if you find yourself avoiding certain people. Like, I don't wanna go through that conversation, I wanna go around it. It's probably not healthy. There's probably something going on in your heart if you're going out of your way not to go through something. Speaking of conversations, be very careful about saying, I don't wanna go through that hard conversation, I wanna go over it, under it, around it. What we find ourselves doing is we just push everything under the rug and we don't deal with it. And God's saying, no, you need to go through that situation. You need to deal with that and not go around it. One caveat on this, though, one, one disclaimer. If you're here this morning and you are in a situation where you are being physically abused, when you are being hurt, when you're being taken advantage of, don't mishear what preachers sometimes say on this. You do not stay in that situation. That is not what you are called to go through. You're going to have pain to go through. There's plenty of pain to work through. But if you're here and you're being physically abused, you're being hurt, you're being taken advantage of, the message this morning is not to stay in that. 
Don't, don't mishear what I'm saying and say, well, the preacher told me I'm supposed to go through this. No, you're gonna have plenty to go through, and we'll help you out on that. But that's not the situation we're talking about right now. There are a lot of things that God calls us to go through that we don't want to go through, but that is not the situation that you stay in. Come to us, we will get you help. There are people that God has put in your life who will care for you during, during those times. So I want to ask you the question this morning, what are you going through that you don't want to go through right now? What are you going through or about to go through that the Lord is saying, no, you need to go through this even though you want to go around it? And I pray that as you go through that situation that God will show himself to you in a fresh way, that you will find your faith growing, that you will find your connection with the Lord and with the church growing because you say, I'm willing to go through this situation, not around it. What happens when we go through those situations? This is the last point on the notes and we'll wrap up with this. So we go through the door of salvation, we go through the valley of suffering, and then finally we go through the gates of eternal security. Verse 12, verse 12 of Revelation three. He who overcomes, there's the word overcomes, every time you see overcomes in the book of Revelation, you think about Revelation chapter 12, verse 11, that we overcome through the blood of the lamb and the word of our testimony. So he who overcomes, in verse 12, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. We will participate in what God is building, what God is establishing, his victory. He will not go out from it anymore. No fear of being conquered. No fear of losing that salvation that you have in Christ. We will not go out from it anymore, and I will write on him the name of my God, that our identity will be found in God. The name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven from my God, and my new name. When you go through the door of salvation in Jesus, and you go through the valley of suffering that leads along the way of the cross, on the other side of that is Revelation chapter 21, verses one through four. On the screen, we're gonna end with these verses, I'm gonna pray. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth passed away and there is no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people, and God himself will be among them. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And there will no longer be any death, there will no longer be any mourning, or crying, or pain. The first things have passed away. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word. God, we thank you for your word that speaks to those who are here this morning and struggle so much with the idea of salvation. God, they may be wondering how they could ever be made right with you. They may be struggling over the fact of Jesus being the door to salvation. But God, whatever that situation is, God, I pray that you would give them the courage to walk through the door of salvation, that they would confess Jesus as Lord and Savior this morning, that they would experience that hope and victory in their lives. And Father, we know that we're surrounded this morning by so many stories of people going through things that they never signed up for, that they never wanted to go through, that they never expected to go through. But God, I pray that you would remind us in a fresh way this morning 
that when you call us to go through things, that you are with us. We do not have to be afraid that going through things means that we're following the path of the cross. And we know that the path of the cross always leads to the resurrection, which always leads to victory in Christ. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen.